Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today I'm speaking with Kina Lesky, the author of The Storm of Creativity. Kina Lesky is professor in the Department of Architecture at the Rhode Island School of Design and a founding principal of 360 Architecture. Kina Lesky, thanks so much for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Now, you use the storm as an extended metaphor for the creative process in this book. When did you first see the connection between the two? I have always seen the creative process as stormy. Um, but um, first, I should clarify that my use of the word storm has nothing to do with brainstorming, nor the military use of the word storm, which uh, Alex Fackney Osborne was referring to when he coined the term brainstorming as a barrage of ideas thrown out in problem-solving sessions. I'm using the weather phenomenon of storm as a metaphor. Um, the disturbance of the storm, the disturbance that causes the creative process, the way in which both the storm and the creative pro process start from negative pressure or the imbalance of a disturbance, they both have this propelling cyclical or reiterative process that are, they're fueled by. The, this centripetal, centrifugal uh, nature, that the way they both feed off of their environment or the, the conditions and situation that they exist in, and how they both end up shaping their environment, how they both have vague boundaries between one creative process and another, and one storm and another, or a broader context of weather or climate or the discipline that your one's own creative practice might be, you know, situated in or belongs to, as well as this progressive translation, this movement that they both have until some dwindle out without consequences and others have these tremendous consequences that produce ripple effects. So I've always felt the storminess of creativity, um, but I think that I, I made this uh, more specific connection when I was trying to uh, order the many observations that I've had about creativity in writing this book. So the, suddenly the connection became more deliberate, and the storm metaphor worked to hold together the whole, W-H-O-L-E. Uh, and I literally diagrammed the storm. I mean, that's something that I do. I made this kind of drawing, a spatial, temporal drawing of the, the vortex, this persistent vortex that moves and holds together the many particles and forces that form it. And I could see, then see the way in which the many aspects of creativity um, are held together. And literally, these diagrams became the illustrations in the book. Um, they, the, the diagrams of the drawings function for me as models of creativity. And the metaphor that I use in the writing is a way of describing that. So where's the person in all this? I mean, you talk about the process. Is, is the book there so the reader can learn to understand and perhaps recognize and direct the process? Or is it more that because I'm showing you this process, there are certain skills you can develop to enhance your creativity? Well, I, I see creativity as uh, a practice of curiosity and I think it, it, it's something that can be recognized and directed and that's that's the role that the book can play for the reader um, and I but I and I think that that's something that can be learned that you can learn how to recognize and direct uh, the process that is ongoing 
uh, for instance, you can be more attentive and you can learn to do things to be more attentive. One of them is, it sounds ironic, but it's unlearning. I think that's really important to, um, to, to sort of uh, find ways to be more attentive to the here and now and to things that are in front of you that you don't know. Um, it's disturbing. You need to unlearn what you took for granted, habits, assumptions, preconceptions. It, but it makes one less reliant on looking for what you already know. So you become more attentive to what you do not yet know and need to know. Um, I, I, have a, I recently was talking to this physicist who's a professor here at Brown University. He's the husband of a rowing partner. And he's working on the Higgs boson. So I said, I asked him, um, what is the role of un the uncanny in making discoveries in you know, physics and the so-called hard sciences. And he said, basically the uncanny is exactly what they are seeking and that they do this by seeking everything but what they can define as what they know or what they think of as probable. And he said, there's, there's so much data to record in the accelerator that they would have to slow it down to record everything. So they subtract out the known behavior the probable outcomes and record everything else but probable behavior. And they determine these uh, probable outcomes through their computer simulations. And then he went on to say that they have to question their preconception of what they think of as probable behavior. But I think this is a, a, a perfect example of how one can learn how to direct your practice away from what's already known and towards what is not yet known. So is that question of like what is not known, example in the Higgs boson, that, that question of we're looking at patterns and the parts that we don't quite understand, is that, if going back to the store metaphor, is it that drive to understand or perhaps to uncover what seems to be a mystery? If we think about the storm, is that the part that is propelling the storm forward? Is that's what giving the storm the energy? I think it's what's, what initiates it. I mean, I think the, 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 the unknown comes from, I mean, you may be given a problem or you might um, recognize a problem, but the, there, is, there is no, uh, the disturbance comes from your asking yourself deeply what the problem is that you're given and, and realizing that there's aspects of it that you don't really know. And that, that's the disturbance. That is the real problem. In, within the problem, within the given problem. That's the problem that one must author, one must write, one must create within one the, pro the problem that one's given. Uh, you talk about problems in this book. There's a whole chapter on problem making. And I had never thought about the creative process, you know, that to a large degree, it is about making, picking the right problem. Could you talk a little bit about that for people that, that might sound a little odd, that, that figuring out what the problem is and making the proper problem is actually, to a large degree, one of the mainsprings of creativity? Yeah, well, I, I don't think there, I think it, it's absolutely essential to creativity that you make or author a problem from a given problem. I, 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 you, you always have to rewrite it. And it's, um, it, in order to find something new, something that doesn't yet exist or is not yet known, you have to undo something that you thought you knew. And I mean, that, that is the problem. That, it, it feels like a problem, and it is a problem. And that absence, that thing that no longer ex is known, is the new problem within the one that you were given and is the source of the creative process.
So let's take an example from the book. You talk about different uh, creative agents throughout history. One of the people you talk about is Antonio Gaudi uh, and his work on the Sagrada Familia Basilica in Barcelona. So going to that question about the problem, what was it the problem that Gaudi ended up working on that ended up solving with the, with these buildings in Barcelona? Well, see, that's a, it's a perfect example because many people don't realize that Sagrada Familia was already under construction for three years when um, Antonio Gaudi was, was hired when he was given the commission to continue the work that a previous architect already, already had. So instead of uh, dutifully employing the stylistic elements of Gothic architecture that were probably part of the specifications that he was given, he questioned them. You know, why are they the way they were? Where did they come from? What forces shaped these stylistic elements? And um, he, in questioning these assumptions about what, what constitutes Gothic architecture, he found that Gothic architecture came from a desire to make stone soar. So he rewrote the problem as a search for form uh, that had to do with this structural problem of, of stone, because stone is a pretty limited material. It works in compression. It doesn't work well in tension or in shear. So basically, stones like to be piled up. They can be, um, if they're piled along the vector of the stress line, the vector that, that its load is carried by gravity to the ground, they can be piled higher and they can span uh, space. So, what, so Gaudi took this as a way of a criteria for finding form. And he made these models called funicular models that are basically made up of hanging cord and weights and sandbags and ropes. And these models were made completely from catenary curves, which catenary curve, a catenary curve is the curve that a material takes in pure tension, like if you were to hold a chain between two supports. That shape that it takes on is, is in pure tension, and if you make it rigid and invert it, it acts in pure compression like the St. Louis Arch. So Gaudi used these models as a way of developing a language that's a material language, a geometric language, a structural language, and it, it literally, the language propelled the process forward and generated the design. And what's really interesting, that another little factoid about Gaudi that not everybody knows, is that it, he um, created these tilted columns in the central nave, which are a real structural invention, because they came directly from the angle of the length of the cord hanging in the funicular models. But what they did is they re reduced the amount of thrust on the arch so the flying buttress, which was used in Gothic architecture to counteract thrusts, were no longer necessary. And in addition, additionally, he, he was a spiritual man. So the gravity that shaped the catenary curves of the models, when inverted, conceptually shaped the stone, but also it represented the force of the heavens shaping the church. So, you know, he, all of this came from his taking a given problem and rewriting it. So to put it in other ways, it, we say that although it might not look like a traditional Gothic cathedral, he understood the syntax. He just used a different vernacular, and that's why it looks different. But if you if you go down to its essence, the ideas that are animating it are the same as you might find in a traditional Gothic cathedral. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things I really enjoyed about this book, and I admit I kind of share the same affection, is you really like etymology, the study of words, the history of words. And you look at certain words and look at their history and then think about those words with the array to process. Uh, why is etymology so important to this book? 
Well, I, I've always loved etymology, but I have a feeling it's because it's very similar to aspects of the creative process. I mean, I, you know, I, I find that I often, I'm just using words automatically and mindlessly, but if I were to ask myself what a word really means, I may have a sense of how to use it or when to use it, but I don't really know what it means. And if I go down the path of seeking its etymology, I find that I, I'm unlearning what I thought it meant and I'm opening my mind and I'm gathering new information and making connections. And these are all, you know, chapters in my book. This is basically my idea of what constitutes the creative process. And so the words suddenly become alive again. Um, you know, the process of understanding words etymology is, is very sim similar to opening your mind and making these connections that you otherwise would not have known. So my most recent example that I've just like looked up like a couple of weeks ago was the word insinuate, um, which, you know, I found is related to sine and sine curve and sinus and sinuous as in a sinuous coastline. So suddenly there's this connection between mathematics, geometry, trigonometry, a hollow cavity, you know, in the skull anatomy and a geographic feature. And, and suddenly the word insinuate packs this punch of the thought of snaking along a sinuous coastline to gain entry. And the other thing that I particularly enjoy about etymology is when you find often that the roots are onomatopoeia. And then it's not only an intellectual exercise, but you can suddenly feel and hear the connection of the sound of words and their meaning. So my favorite being uh, anima or for soul or life force, the root of animal, the word animal and animus and animate, the ah, uh, the ah sound of breath in, knee sustained breath and ma breath out. So right in that word is the life force in its sounds. And so words get bigger through etymology. Kinaleski, the author of The Storm of Creativity, Thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Thank you, Chris. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash mitpress. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2015, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.